Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and I am here with Bradley Osop. Hi folks. And today we have some three interesting topics for you. Firstly, the uh, big uh, deal over the last few days, uh, certainly in uh, England and the UK and Europe, um, has been the uh, attempted breakaway by some of the uh, quote-unquote biggest clubs in Europe. Um, In England, that means uh, Manchester United, Manchester City, uh, Arsenal, uh, Chelsea, Liverpool, and also for some reason Tottenham's there as well. Um, they tried to break away along with uh, a number of uh, European clubs, 12 in total, uh, to form uh, an American-style uh, European Super League, uh, which would have had no uh, real promotion or relegation uh, from them um, and was widely opposed and reviled uh, across the media and established structures, even politicians wading in, and of course, that's most importantly the fans as well. So that's been a huge story. It now seems to be falling down around the billionaire owner's ears who put it forward. So we'll be talking about that, I suspect, at some length. Um, But it's also important to acknowledge today, yesterday, uh, that one of the biggest stories of uh, 2020 was the death of uh, George Floyd, um, a, a black man in the United States uh, who was, we can now say, uh, murdered by a white police officer. And uh, it took uh, a year for him to actually convicted, despite uh, the incident all being on camera. Um, and but he has now been convicted and will be uh, sentenced in June. Lots of people saying that uh, this isn't really justice, but it is accountability uh, and therefore uh, a step towards justice. Of course, the uh, important impact of those processes that it um, very much um, not reinvigorated because it never went away, but the uh, it made Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, probably one of the most important protest movements of the last year and, and continuing. Um, and uh, this was the inciting incident for it in 2020. Uh, and now there has been uh, some some progress, arguably. So we'll be talking about that uh, later on. And then finally, we're going to end with a, a good news story uh, from uh, the last few days, which is the first powered flight of humanity, albeit remotely, um, on another planet. So all of that's coming up. Uh, But back to the first story, which was the uh, attempted creation of the European Super League. Um, The clubs involved, uh, save the English clubs uh, anyway, were Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, Manchester City, uh, Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur. it's kind of an echo, if you like, of what happened more than, or nearly 30 years ago, actually, when the uh, top 20 clubs in, in English football broke away and tried to and, and succeeded in creating a separate league for themselves called the Premiership, which is still with us today. Um, the difference between that and the league which went before is that unlike the league being owned and run by the Football Association, 
which is the official governing body of uh, football in England, um, this league would be owned and run by whatever clubs were involved in it at the time. And there was eventually a kind of agreement reached that people who um, uh, were relegated from it would then resign from it and the people who were promoted and, and so on. Um, therefore, it, uh, although it was a very uh, transparent attempt to you know, basically grab money for these clubs and their owners at the time, um, at least it sort of fit in to the existing structure of football. So it was kind of swallowed, accepted, I guess, um, by, by, the, by the footballing world. The European Super League was going to be different uh, in the sense that uh, there would have been, uh, well, there were 12 clubs which actually uh, broke away initially or trying to break, break away. They thought they were going to be joined by uh, uh, three others. So uh, that w we think that would have been um, Bayern Munich and uh, Brescia Dortmund, two German teams, and Paris Saint-Germain uh, from France. But it would appear that the French and German clubs didn't want to join, and we'll talk about why that is as well uh, in, in a little while. Um, but there was a, a huge backlash to it. And I just want to kind of explain why this was, uh, why this is so important to people, why it matters. Because I think a lot of political people will look at it and go, well, this is, you know, this is sport. This is just sort of recreation. It doesn't have any real meaning. Uh, you know, a couple of people I've seen, seen say, say the, the old thing about, um, how, uh, you know, I wish people would get this passionate about the Tories and the government as they do uh, about sport. But I just want, I just want to explain why this is important. I will just say what well, the, the founding clubs were: Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur from England, Inter Milan, Juventus, AC Milan from Italy, uh, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Real Madrid from Spain. So not really even ubiquitously European, just from uh, three particular countries. Um, but I just want to explain why this is important to people. Um, and just sort of from my personal experience, you know, I'll, I'll stick my hand up and say, you know, I, I am a bad football fan, right? Football, I, I was brought up in a, in a footballing family. Most of my family supports Arsenal. My mother supports Queen's Park Rangers. Nominally, the latter is my main team. But of course, I also support Lincoln as my as my local side. Um, but I mean, in my day to day life, while those are my teams, they don't really factor into my day to day life. I don't really keep up with the scores. Don't I, I vaguely pay attention to where they are in the league. I'm pleased when they do well disappointed when they don't but it, as i say it, i i have other uh, obsessions like politics for instance this podcast and so on um however every now and again and you know my, my election agent says you know uh that you know i need to know the scores of, of lincoln every week and i do try and remember those but i, I don't want to be inauthentic by pretending that that this you know that it is a, is a huge part of my life um, however, every now and again, something will happen. And, you know, for me, the, a good example of this is back in 2018. And I think this may have been the case for a lot of people like me. Um, 
uh, when you know England was in the World Cup and obviously they got to the quarterfinals, which everyone it's usually the point where they drop out, right? It's sort of their level. You know, they are one of the best teams in the world, but then they're not usually one of the best. They're not expected to win it. Um, although obviously everyone hopes and supporters and so on, they want to do down the support that people put towards them or the effort that goes into it. That's often where England gets to in international competitions. Then all of a sudden, they were in the semi-finals, and everyone thought, "Oh gosh, they could actually win it." And I remember completely inexplicably and very much to the surprise of my friends who were there at the time, the tears, actual tears rolling down my eyes um, at this prospect. And, you know, I think, again, some people might say, oh, well, you know, that's just a source of nationalism. You know, it's kind of kind of unhealthy. And, yeah, there are elements of that. Um, you know, important to note, you know, there's often uh, higher increases of violence against women when, t- when teams do badly. Um, so, you know, it, there are serious problems with it. But the, the principle of having a team to support and wanting to do well, I think is actually, I, I think it is broadly healthy because, and I think for anyone who's gone through the pandemic in the last year and suffered through the isolation that we've all been suffering, I think the prospect of going to a football match, if you've ever been to one, I, I do encourage you to go, even if you've not got any interest in football, or perhaps another sport, like rugby, for instance, or whatever, you might get a similar sort of experience. Uh, I don't know, I've never been to a rugby match. But um, if you walk through the gates and you can hear that sort of crowd around you, that buzz, that feeling, that shared energy, that shared warmth, people singing in unison, it's uh, an electric experience. Uh, That's sort of a cliche. But I think that the reason it's kind of important, it's a very good... um, podcast called um, ACFM um, on Navarra Media. I highly recommend you go and look at it because there's this concept of collective joy, like this idea that, you know, uh, you can experience some of the best human emotions when you're having a collective shared experience because we're humans, we're social creatures, and that can have positive political ramifications as well as obviously people like us will always argue you can achieve more as a collective, which is true, than you do as an individual. And these sorts of events, going to gigs as well, uh, is a way of sort of manifesting that. And you can experience all of the strongest emotions of being human, Um, joy, anticipation, um, fear and, and anger as well, but in a much more controlled environment when you're at a, at a football match and when it's over if you're sensible anyway you can just go oh you know it's well that's that's the match isn't it and you can have a good moan as well about the managers and the players and the referee and all of that sort of thing you know it's all it's all good fun it should be some people take it too seriously that is why football matters to people and i think it's not um and it's kind of so so for me as i say it's a bit like uh, when people say they're uh, they're religious or they were brought up religious and then, you know, later on they drift away from it in later life uh, and then they have some kind of experience which draws them back in. 
I'm not saying that like football is is a, is a replacement for religion in people's lives. Obviously, there's no theory of life and death, no real philosophy about how you should live your life or anything like that. But and what I am saying is that there are similar emotions at play and it's important, therefore, the health of the game is important for people's health and well-being, at least for a lot of people. So that's why this sort of thing matters in general. And that's why when an incident like this crops up, there is so much outrage because it the, the whole idea of this European Super League is that there are going to be 15 teams, that's what was proposed. Um, none of them would be able to be relegated because it would belong to them. Um, you would then have five extra spots for teams to qualify from the rest of Europe. Presumably there was no really uh, worked out plan, it seems, for how that would work. And I think the uh, the astonishing thing for me over the last couple of days has been to see how much solidarity there has actually been against it. Because it was transparently unfair, obviously it broke that principle of, uh, of promotion and relegation. So there's this idea in football that you know, you and I, we could, we could, if we could got, if we could get eleven players together and somewhere to play, uh, you know, and a bit of money for for uniforms and kits and so on, and you know, someone to to, to coach them and, and so on, you know, we could put together a football team, start in the lower leagues, um, make your way gradually up the football pyramid, and eventually, in sort of 10, 20, 30 years time, you know, we could be playing at the top of English football. Uh, and indeed at the top of European uh, football. That is possible in a pyramid structure, which is what we have. Um, and on top of that, you've got the, the, the European Champions League in order to determine who the best team is in Europe for a year. Um, you know, Because I've tried and I've sat down to try and work out how you could have maybe like an Iberian League or a British Isles League that all of the national leagues would feed into, into a pyramid. It's just... It's just too messy. It wouldn't really work. The only way you can really do it is to have qualifiers and groups and then a knockout, which is basically what you have in, in, in the Champions League. Um, so there's no real way to do it fairly. Um, and so they've, they've basically broken with, or tried to break with that principle, these, these big clubs. Um, and it would have had an economic impact as well. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on, on, on how all of this works. But basically the idea, one of the sort of agreements that was struck when the Premier League was set up was that some of the money from the ad revenue, from the TV revenue, from the sponsorship revenue would sort of be disseminated down the rest of the league and used to support development in local clubs. And obviously this is this sort of favours the big clubs as well because they can basically use local uh, sports development schemes in order to scout for players, which they can then sort of poach, basically. I think that's the idea. Um, but it does have a, an economic benefit because, of course, out of that, the, at least in theory, you get stronger local clubs. And, of course, local clubs are then also local employers. Um, match day, you, it means you get people coming in from far and wide to support their team and also, of course, using local bars, local shops, that sort of thing. 
So there's a big economic element potentially to it. And that, all that's creating employment. So that's why people like Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer have got involved, of course, and why other politicians have, uh, have waded into it as well, because there's an economic element to it as well as um, a, a sort of moral and social one that I was uh, describing before. Um, so that's what that's why you know the, 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 these issues are important, um, and yet against all of that, what was really interesting about it is that these clubs are all owned universally by billionaire owners, um, most of them you know from America, um, ones from Saudi Arabia, one of them very famously is from Russia, Roman Abramovich. The owner of Chelsea, um, and they just seemed to think th- these are the sorts of people who have probably gone their whole lives getting their way. But the interesting thing was that they didn't get their way. It's, it's but by the time we're recording now on um, Wednesday afternoon, twenty first of April, um, all of the big six in the UK in, in England. Um, have now uh, dropped out or backed out of the scheme because of the huge universal opposition to it. Um, you've had, obviously, UEFA, EFA and FIFA, which are the European, English and international uh, sporting bodies or footballing bodies um, coming out against it, saying we'll ban players from playing for national teams ban players from playing in other competitions as well as you've had formal opposition from those established structures. Remarkably, if you were watching things like you know BBC Sports, Sky Sports, those sorts of things, which again, I don't really watch on a day-to-day basis, but obviously the clips have been all over the internet in the last couple of days. Um, you've got condemnation, quite vigorous condemnation coming from uh, pundits and the, and even the presenters, which you would never be able to get away with if it was a, if it was a, a normal political issue, uh, if you like. And of course, uh, and, and of course, huge opposition from fans as well. Protests at matches, uh, you know, condemnation online, threats to boycott, that sort of thing. Um, and all of that has rail, been railed against these billionaire owners. So for me, looking at it, it seemed like it was the ultimate manifestation of pure neoliberal uh, capitalist will fighting against established structures, civil society, and even and even politics. It's very interesting to see who was going to win, and civil society appears to have won um, in this case. And it was really interesting because these these billionaire owners and their chief executives appear to have done no groundwork for it. You know, they could very, they could easily have, well, not easily, but they, you know, they don't seem to have, uh, Jürgen Klopp was the the most prominent example, but it does seem, it does seem that they didn't even consult with their managers, like the public faces of their clubs. They didn't consult with their players. I think it's important to say as well, um, a lot of the players and managers did get a lot of unfair stick um, in in the wake of this as well, um, which was not warranted because, again, they didn't have anything to do with it, uh, it would seem. Um, but they didn't consult with those people. They didn't consult with their fans, perhaps most importantly. Um, 
they didn't try to buy off anyone in the media because they just didn't seem to think that they needed to. Um, so in a way, it's the incident is kind of refreshing because, as someone put it on, on Sky Sports I was watching earlier, the good guys have won. You know, who, who are the good guys? Is the Premiership really the good guys? Are the other 14 clubs in the Premier League really the good guys? UEFA, FIFA, you know, the FA, these are usually antagonists if you're talking about uh, the future of football. Um, so, uh, you know, the, but if you're talking about the fans, the fans, I guess, they're, they're the good guys. They have won. I, I, but I do wonder if any one of those factors had been different, if they had ha- managed to have some support from the punditry, perhaps if they had had a promotion and relegation system that had been coherent. Um, another thing as well, I haven't mentioned that they didn't even really, they paid sort of lip service to it. They didn't even say that they were going to launch a women's league, um, you know, which you would have thought this day and age would be, you know, extremely important. Um, you know, they didn't do any of that. They just thought, we, you know, we're just going to arrogantly start our own, European Super League and we're just going to be able to get away with it. They haven't got away with it. Um, and I think it's it has important political ramifications because it does raise questions now in people's minds because I think for the last few decades people have been very uh, or, or the, the, the footballing world has been very tolerant in general of billionaire owners coming in and investing in the club. Um, there are positive examples of that. There's a guy um you know, in Scotland, who basically brought his bought his local club, Gretna, which was a, a bottom division club, and took them all the way to the Scottish Premier League. Um, and he never made any money on that. On that, as I understand it, he was just doing it because I think he was old, and I think he I think he was dying as well. Um, and he just decided, I'm just going to invest in this club and see if I can do it. And he did. But it's very. But I think we've got this kind of myth from that in general that these billionaire owners are benevolently owning these clubs in order to support them as a sort of hobby i guess but it's very clear that they're actually there to make money now um and they're just looking to exploit exploit these clubs and exploit the supporters as well who've paid increasingly high fees and don't forget this is a supposed to be a working class game that's invented by Invented by the poor, stolen by the rich is the slogan which has been coming up. And so this now, I think, has the potential to focus people's minds. Because I say, if you look at uh, the German teams, two of the uh, German teams, Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich rather, and Borussia Dortmund, in Germany they have a rule that only 49% of the club can be owned by corporate investors. The other 51% has to be owned by fans and I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I'm really interested in it now because what it means is that, and I think other people should be as well, is that that basically meant that fans knew about it immediately and they effectively stopped it from even getting off the ground there uh, in Germany. And I think that's a model that we can, that should be implemented in other parts of Europe. I think it should be implemented um, in England, in the UK, um, because... At the end of the day, football does belong to its supporters. And I think it's now up to political people and and politicians to actually listen to that and legislate along those lines. And ultimately, I think for fans who maybe have been politicized by this incident, 
to really pay attention and, and I think support those efforts to make our national sport uh, and indeed our international sports is very important in the rest of the world um, a little bit more democratic and to make it actually belong to the people make it the people's game once again so I've, that was a, a sort of long speech uh, as I say I did warn you guys before we started recording that uh, I had a lot to say on it so I hope I haven't bored you I don't know if you've got any any thoughts uh, either of you if you're still awake oh Bradley good yeah uh, no I mean I, I, I think you're right um, I, I will caveat this by saying that I, I am not a sports person um, and I I could probably count on one hand the number of football matches I've watched um, in my lifetime. Uh, um, I, 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 don't, I don't really get sport, is, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not a sports person. I'm not a football person. But this story has absolutely gripped me. Um, I think I've probably spent more time listening about, um, certainly now, <laughs> listening about, um, reading about, thinking about football this week than I have probably in the rest of my life combined. Um, professional football, if you don't count kicking a ball around your mates. Um, and I think I think it, it's absolutely gripped me because it, it is such a very obvious and blatant um, sort of power and money grab by by the elite, by, by very wealthy billionaires. Um, and I think I think a model of football that I can sort of understand and almost actually want want to get involved in now, actually, um, coming from someone that previously had no interest in football at all, is this sort of this image you painted of a of a very local fan led democratic sort of football that's got very deep ties in the local community and all that sort of stuff. I can get behind that. I can, I can almost understand that and can and, and envision myself spending a few hours on a Saturday afternoon going and watching that. Um, what what I can't understand and what I can't relate to is is you know massive clubs owned by billionaires um, with with players earning you know millions or tens of millions a year and all that sort of stuff. I think it just it's one of the most egregious examples of, of the excesses of capitalism and the unfairness and the injustice of capitalism um, and how it how it twists and, and distorts things from from what they should be. I think it's one of the most obvious examples of that, and I think that I think it, that's true of, of top level football in general. I think actually, but particularly this European um, Super League, is, is seems to have gone one step further again. And you know what? Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't those owners try this when they've gotten away with so much else um, in the past? Um, and I, I think you're right. They didn't do any of the political groundwork, and it, it is now we're on air. It's looking like it, the whole thing's crumbled really, with all six teams, certainly from the English side, pulling out. I can't really see how it goes ahead after that, um, but I think I think it was arrogance. I think these billionaires are used to getting what they want, um, and and they're used to not having to think about what fans or or consumers or workers want or, or care about. So I think to them it was just a natural thing to do. What why would they lay the groundwork? Why why would they care about what other people think or worry about a backlash? Um, so yeah, you know, I I think it's it's good that it looks like it, it's gonna crumble. I suppose the the thing that I'm really interested in and why I suppose I've really been hooked by it 
is because you know you've now got millions of fans across Europe, um, absolutely and quite rightly outraged by this, by the idea of a billionaire um, and, a, and a small elite uh, essentially hoarding the wealth and, and the prestige and, and, and the advantages to themselves. Well, boy, have I got a story about the rest of society for you. Um, how do we take that anger? How do we take that analysis, actually? You know, you listen to Gary Neville um, and, and other fo- football fans uh, talk about this issue. They use words that are very, very similar to what a lot of socialists use. They have an analysis very, very similar to socialism. Um, the problem is, is for a lot of people at the moment, that is an analysis um, only within the sphere of football and, and and professional sport so for me as a socialist what i'm really interested in is how do we take that opening and apply it to a wider conversation about the rest of society because it's not just football this happens it happens in this is a story that you will see time and time again across different spheres of society and clearly instinctually it doesn't feel right to people what has happened here and what these what these owners are trying to do so how do we take that anger and that instinctual sense of injustice and apply it to all the other spheres in which this happens? I think that, for me, is a really interesting question for, for the left to answer. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's definitely something that's that needs to be thought about. I mean, my, my thought on it was that if uh, we do succeed in getting some kind of um, support or ownership, in football clubs that could create a precedent that gets people thinking well if we if we are implementing it here why not in other areas of our economic life um, like it is in in germany to some extent not to say that you know germany is anything like a you know a socialist utopia of course it's not um, but it does have some more what we would call progressive social democratic values in the way its economy is owned and run um, which would definitely be an improvement on, on what we have uh, in, in here and in much of the rest of the world. The other thing I was going to say is um, maybe there are already forces within um, w- within football that, that could help with that transition, actually. I mean, I, I, I don't know. The uh, people that know more about this than me, but sh- surely there are some socialists that are prominent in football. Maybe it's Gary Neville. I don't know. I don't know much about Gary Neville's politics, um, but... I, I certainly, I don't know if you've seen the clip of him um, where he was on Sky Sports, where he was absolutely tearing this stuff apart, this deal. Um, I, I think he was great, actually. I, I, as someone that's never really cared about football in my life, I suddenly was very passionate about grassroots fan-led football, listening to him. Um, I don't know what his wider politics are. Maybe he, he already has that analysis, the rest of society, I don't know. But I think that that to me is what what we need we need to when the moments like this come along we shouldn't waste them as the left i don't think and it use this as a chance to push for reform within football absolutely but also just just to widen that analysis up a little bit and and how do we take that to to the next level i think this is what i'm interested in maybe gary neville's the guy to to do it i don't know i don't know what the rest of his politics are i think um i think first of all we need to acknowledge that we have actually lost ollie um, he's still here, but we can't hear him for some reason, uh, which is a shame. But never mind. Well, um, we shall carry on um, under his instruction. Um, but yes, the yeah, no, Gary Neville. Uh, he has actually, 
I think he's actually expressed some quite progressive views in the past. I, I think when he was talking to the media uh, yesterday and the day before, um, he was saying, look, you know, I'm not opposed to money being in football because how can he say that? Because he himself has made a lot of money from being a footballer uh, and so on. In fact, at the time, uh, I think Ash Sarkar and Navarra Media noted that he was actually literally talking into a Sky Sports mic, which has been one of the big players in the commercialization of, of, of football over the last 20 years. So, you know, whether people like him, um, these saying the right things, are necessarily the people to lead that, that movement. Um, obviously, their support is welcome, um, but we shouldn't really be looking for heroes here. I think almost um, almost uniquely uh, in, a, in, a, in civil society, this football fans are a group of people who can organise themselves to the tune of millions um, pretty well, actually. Um, and on, on this occasion, I mean, there was, there was a bit of tit for tat I noted between Jurgen Klopp and Gary Neville, um, a lot more civil than than has been in football traditionally. Um, the, I think Gary Neville did take a little bit of a swipe at, at Liverpool um, for for you know being involved in this, but also at the same time criticising his own club, Manchester United. Le- and Leeds, Klopp, Klopp Leeds versus Greaves, I think, is what he tweeted ahead of their match. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so so maybe that wasn't the most diplomatic move from uh, for, from Leeds fans, um, because obviously I mean, they they left um, some shirts in the Liverpool uh, uh, dressing room, sort of expecting that they're going to directly oppose their employer, which I think is a little bit a little bit unfair. I mean, Jurgen Klopp did say basically very strongly indicate that he was opposed to the idea but you know it's for you can't you can't i think it'd be it's unfair to put them in that position is is kind of what i'm saying um and we should i think we need to bear that in mind when we're talking about uh players and managers and that it's because they will they do have an interest in this thing right which is why i was a bit surprised that i say that um the clubs didn't really try to buy them off at all I, I would push back against that a little bit because I mean th- these aren't these aren't factory floor workers we're talking about, are they? They they are a lot of them will probably be millionaires. Um, so it, it's not as if in, in the normal circumstances, no, I wouldn't expect um, people. Well, actually, that's not even true, is it? We 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 encourage workers to go on strike and taking additional action against unfair practices and all that sort of stuff. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Liverpool players should have gone on strike. I don't know. It's not, it's not as if they've not got the financial resources to, to um, not survive a short bout of unemployment if it came to that. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe we can ask a little bit more of, of millionaire football players than we might otherwise ask of, of other employees. Um, but I, I, take, I, take the, I take the point about Gary Neville. Maybe he's not the messiah. Um, I, I was just quite taken with his speech and I, I, it's not something I'd ever seen from a, a, a person prominent in, in the football industry before. I was quite taken with it. But yeah, I, I don't really know much about the guy. I don't really know much about his politics. Um, it, I, don't, I don't know what, what his wider beliefs around football are. But I think some of the stuff he was saying about this issue um, was very good and expressed very well, I thought, um, in a way that I think would resonate with a, a lot of football fans. Yeah, no, it was it was, it was was absolutely fantastic 
sentiment. As I say, he, he did sort of, uh, you know, um, qualify what he was saying, as, as I said, saying that he benefited from football, but this was still his view uh, from money and football. Um, and we don't actually know at this stage what conversations are going on in the background, by the way, um, because one of the big things that the, the UEFA, the FA and FIFA sort of threatened was players who participate in this won't be allowed to play for a national side. Um, and for a footballer, even if you're on millions of pounds a year, um, there's still a huge element of pride to playing for your country. And it's essentially your place in history, especially if you win a competition, for instance, people, you know, because everyone still remembers, uh, well, anyone who's, you know, who's a bit of anything about football in England knows about Bobby Charlton, Bobby Moore, though their names are essentially immortal because they played for England and people remember that. Um, so, you know, so, yeah, so it might well be that, that players were threatening to go on strike in the background. That's, that's entirely possible um, because the stakes for them were actually really, really high. And I think maybe more of that will, will uh, emerge in due course. Um, but, uh, yeah, very, very interesting part, uh, future football. And I, I, and I think people, the point I want to emphasise is don't under underestimate the impact that sports can have on culture and you know i was just kind of reminded of uh, justinian the great you know as one of the early byzantine emperors you know he left us the the uh, uh he, his codex basically was one of what is sort of the foundation of modern law right hugely significant character reconquered italy briefly in north africa and all of that hugely powerful figure in his day, but none of that would have happened because he almost got overthrown by by um, football hooligans, <laughs> as the media would portray them if they weren't so sympathetic. Um, these days, there was there was a riot essentially in in the in the local coliseum, um, and and he was very nearly bloodily overthrown. So you know, don't un underestimate sports. Um, it's what I would say, but we'll um, we'll move on to uh, our final story, um, which you know, we'll go we'll go on to. Uh, I think another, I think that was quite a positive story in a way because we have the the good guys have won. We can say at the moment we'll see how that plays out in future, um, but the other big story from the last few days. It was the success of NASA uh, in actually succeeding in putting a helicopter, essentially a drone, uh, on Mars that worked, it flew. So this is the first powered flight uh, by humanity on another world other than Earth, which is it's, it's huge. Like, we've put... Uh, we put man on the moon, but then of course the moon is just the moon. It's basically like stepping out into your front yard in space terms. Um, we've sent plenty of uh, probes into space. We've had rovers land on Mars for decades now to study it. Um, but this is the first time we've had a, a powered flight. It's very, very difficult to achieve because the atmosphere on Mars, I think is something like... Um, one percent of uh, of Earth's, 
So you need a lot more power and a lot less weight in order to actually get off the ground. But it did fly for about a minute. Um, it flew up into the air. Uh, it spun round, took some pictures, and then it landed again successfully. You could see, I mean, they had masks on, but you could see the sheer joy on the uh, scientists' faces. Um, you know, we're, we're now expecting there to be a manned mission to, to Mars in the next decade. Um, so, you know, this is a huge leap forward for humanity, I think, um, because it does sort of, you know, raise questions because as we always, as we always say, there are always questions to be asked. Uh, you've got the likes of uh, billionaires. We've just spent the last sort of 40 odd minutes talking about how billionaires have misbehaved in the sporting world. But we're also looking at people like Elon Musk, who are billionaires, who are trying desperately to get to space. Um, is this, uh, firstly, this is, this is a huge achievement, isn't it, Bradley? But does it, uh, are there elements that we need to be cautious about as well looking forward? I mean, this was, a, this was the National Space Agency of the United States, so state-owned, to be fair. There, there hasn't been any private exploitation on Mars just yet. But if Elon Musk gets his way, he wants to start a colony there and, uh, and all of that, which will presumably be under his control. So what do we think? What's the, we want to talk a bit about space politics, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's fantastic. This, along with the, the images a few weeks ago from the rover, um, the first, you know, really high, high quality images on the ground um, were, I mean, they're fantastic, aren't they? They'll, they'll go down in history. Um, and it, it's sort of eerily beautiful to see that that footage, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, from the rover of, of the Martian landscape, to, to see it in that quality. Um, it it, feel, it felt historic when I saw it. Um, and I think, I think I mean, I, I'm very captured by, by the idea of the space race and the, and you know, get get it, well, not the space race in the, the Cold War sense, that was not great, but, but you, do you know what I mean? Like going out there and exploring and, and, and reaching the stars um, and a colony on Mars and a base, a base on the moon. Um, I think that's all, all of that is fantastic. Um, I think we, we learn so much about the universe and our place in it by doing that. Um, and there's also very good practical reasons to, to want to have a colony on Mars um, in that there's all sorts of cataclysmic events that can happen on Earth at, at some point. Um, you know, asteroid hitting, Yellowstone erupting, all, all these sorts of things, not to mention climate change as well. But I don't, I don't think the best solution to climate change is to keep running to different planets. I, I think we should probably try and deal with climate change rather than just saying, oh, we'll, we'll pack off to Mars when it all gets bad here. Um, but, but for other things, you know, sort of natural disasters, I think, in the long view of humanity, it makes a lot of sense to be spread across more than one planet. And, and Elon Musk, you know, that's a, that's a big thing for him, that, that he wants to ensure the survival of the human race. I'm sure he also wants to ensure the survival of his own profits as well. Um, but, but you know, he, he does have that as a, as a bit of a guy in philosophy. Um, so I think it's fantastic to see, and it's nice to see state-led um, institutions still, you know, packing a punch in, in, in how we explore the universe. I think things to worry about are that billionaires are more involved than ever probably um in in the exploration of space so you, you've got two of the biggest interests are, are bezos um jeff bezos he has um blue blue origin i think his company's called 
um, and they're very quite focused on um, commercial orbital flights um, around the Earth, um, looking at. I, th- I think I think they are supposed to be getting going within the decade, um, and looking at about two hundred grand a pop um, for for a short space flight as as a commercial thing. And then you've also got Musk, who's got a, a slightly grander vision of um, a colony on Mars um, and, and getting to Mars. Um, and in fairness, to give them their due, both companies have um, begun um, innovating and, and, and driving forward the tech um, and, and helping that will in turn reduce costs of spaceflight. Um, I can't remember which of the two it is, but one of them, um, I, think it, I think it might be Musk, or maybe it was one of them anyway, um, they've successfully launched um, a rocket and then landed it back on the same launch pad um, for the first time in history. Um, and that obviously has lots of implications for how much it will reduce the costs of space travel. Um, so to give them their due, although it's not necessarily just them, it's all the workers and, and, and the engineers and everything involved in that. In that it, you know, it's not Musk running the whole show from, from his living room. Um, but those companies are contributing to the innovation and, and, and aiding the space progress. So fair play. I think the question is, who who makes the decisions and who owns the resources that that both contribute to the to space exploration, but are also gained from space exploration. So you've also got companies now being set up to start mining asteroids. Um, who 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 says they have a right to do that? These are resources out out in space. Um, no human has ever touched them, gone near them, um, and yet large corporations feel that they have a right to control it and, and to own it and to use it to, to generate their own profits. And there's some really serious questions to be asked about that, about whether that's okay, whether that, that that's how we want things to operate. Um, and of course, if you have large billionaires increasingly controlling space exploration, they will increasingly decide what the priorities are. Do, do we need commercial orbital flights around the Earth? Like, sure, it'd be cool, but none of us are going to get to go on one if it's two hundred grand a pop, are we? Um, is that what that amount of money and investment and resources and intelligence should be geared towards commercial orbital flights, or are there smarter, more strategic things we could be doing that helps us explore the solar system in, in a better and quicker way? So, I think the the not to say that that project itself won't have benefits beyond commercial orbital flights, but could those energies be directed at some another goal within the space exploration that might be more fruitful? Who, who knows? I'm not an expert. Um, but I think those are valid questions to ask. And actually, ultimately, what we answer to those questions doesn't really matter whilst it's billionaires that, that are controlling the resources. So, yes, I, th- I think it's an exciting time. I think it's fantastic what NASA's been doing. Um, I think some of the things that Musk and Bezos are doing is exciting as well. Um, but ultimately, I don't want to see it in the hands of billionaires. What what space exploration ends up looking like this century? Yeah, and I think it's. Um, I mean, do you think there's an element of you know history potentially repeating itself? Because the the equivalent experience that we've had in human history so far was the colonization of the Americas by Europeans, right? So this was you know. Uh, back back in the 16th, 17th century, the Americas might have might have been, uh, you know, w- w- was the next frontier, right? And people were at the time we were living in what was essentially still a feudal society, and all of the 
serious colonization efforts that went forward at that time had to be pretty much sponsored by the crown otherwise they wouldn't and, and sanctioned by the crown otherwise they wouldn't survive um and then what eventually happened at least in 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 the americas and it's not a process that's finished either um is that those people who then live there establish their own identity they establish their own economies and they establish their own systems of government remember that the american revolution where they broke away from great britain that came first before the french revolution was indeed uh, arguably the inspiration for it well not even arguably people people in the french during the french revolution were looking to uh, what had happened in america just a decade previously when they started overthrowing their own Asian regime do you think something similar could happen as humans progress into space you know we go to other worlds using the capitalist system that we currently occupy and that uh, ends ends up evolving into something new uh, on other planets do you think that's possible well i suppose the activist in me will answer uh, no because we'll have global socialism by the time we but it's probably got substantial large populations on other on other planets I would hope we've got our house in order on Earth, and, and we've got a, uh, you know, we we've thrown off the shackles of neoliberal capitalism, and we've got a much more rational and humane way of running the world, at least on the majority of countries. Of course, that that's the, the slightly naive, optimistic activist answer, um, but I think we've we've got to aim towards that. I think, um, but if we assume that capitalism still reigns supreme across the Earth, as we've got substantial populations on other planets. Then I think it is a distinct possibility, actually. Um, some really good sci-fi I've been reading recently. Um, one is um, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Red Mars trilogy, um, and there a big antagonist of of the of this of the trilogy is what what he called metanationals, which are corporations that are even larger than than the corporations we have today. Um, and, and how they are vying for control of the resources of Mars and how that goes against um, what a, a lot of the original settlers and, and then the children that they have and the children that they have, you know, sort of feel should be right for Mars. Um, not got to change that story yet, so I don't know how it ends up turning out. Uh, but then the other is The Expanse, which is a really good series. It's a show on Prime as well, ironically owned uh, by Bezos. And uh, Bezos is actually supposed to be quite a big... Um, Big fan of the expanse actually, which may be slightly ironic given that he's a billionaire funding the space exploration. But anyway, the, the point there is that the that Mars actually ends up um, being independent and is very hostile to to the, to Earth and the UN. And then there is a growing uh, movement of political agitators and terrorists um, called the OPA um, that that are set up in the belt, so space stations that that mine the asteroid belt. And you, you have you know basically a new working class um, that that run that operates in the belt, um, but are also quite dependent on Earth for for all various sorts of resources, uh, you know water and air and all that sort of stuff. So and, and well, particularly food actually, because the point is, belters mine the asteroids to get water, so they could probably provide their own water and air. Um, but what they really need from Earth is, is food and fr- fresh produce from from Earth. Um, and one of the first things not to spoil it too much for people but one of the, what happens in one of the later books is one of the first plans to try and break that hold that earth has is to have them um, 
sort of agricultural um, biomes on on um, I think it's one of the moons um, where they can grow crops there, there on one of those moons. And, and the point of that is to reduce their dependence on Earth. So I think yes is a long answer. I think yeah, I think if if we still have a sort of very rigid capitalist system on Earth as we begin to properly colonise other parts of the solar system, I think there will inevitably be class struggle um, across the solar system. Um, and a lot of that will be determined by what access to resources people have out in space and, and what what bottleneck Earth is able to create around resources, but I think particularly food. I'm gland you mentioned the expanse uh, um, I think was it last year you bought me a copy of it. I very much enjoyed yeah. the first book um, not hinting at all my uh, my birthday's coming up in in a couple of months <laughs> so <laughs> no it was very enjoyable um, and uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. We're not sponsored at all or anything here. Um, but yes, very interesting that Bezos seems seems to like that series. Uh, the, the story I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but the rumour I've heard um, is that he, he was a really big fan of the show when it was on Netflix. And then Netflix, I don't know why, um, I think it was sci-fi maybe that, that did it, but Netflix had the stream rights, I'm not sure. But anyway, whoever had it, it was aired on Netflix and it was cancelled after um, the second season, I think it was. Um, or maybe the third season. And, and, oh, no. and and then Bezos, he, there was a big fan petition to try and get it back because it had quite a big cult following. Um, and then Be- Bezos apparently had caught wind of it and he was a big fan of it as well. So he, he, as you do when you're a billionaire, he, he bought the rights to it and moved it over to Amazon Prime. Oh. I hope he doesn't use that to try and manipulate the story. Well, there's been a couple of seasons so far since that. and I, I've not detected that. Um, there's been there's been no overt capitalist propaganda from what I could pick up so far. <laughs> or, always good. That needs to be like a, a review stamp. No overt capitalist <laughs> uh, propaganda. <laughs> Mild swearing, sexual references. No overt uh, capitalist references. <laughs> oh, that's that's a good one. I can show that one to my children. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure it's really a children's um, story. Yeah, probably um, not. To be no, it's, it's quite a bit of violence. It? Maybe, maybe teenagers yeah. um, probably okay with it. Um, but anyway, yes, I think on that point, it'd be very, very interesting. I, I'm definitely one of those people who uh, who believes it's our manifest destiny to go and explore the stars, um, as long as we don't fuck it up too badly here first. Um, so yeah, very, very exciting to see that power flight. Hopefully, we'll see. Uh, a man or woman or someone otherwise uh, identifies uh, landing on Mars in, in in the next few years. I hope I live to see see us colonise the like, planet. I, th- I think the um, I think I can't remember who it is. It's it's either NASA, it's either Musk or maybe even even China actually. But there is a plan to have um, a, a manned mission to Mars by twenty thirty five. I think. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if that's yeah, most score if it's that. Chinese government or someone, someone, someone with a large amount of resources has a has a, a plan of a manned mission to Mars by twenty thirty five. Well, I mean, hopefully they'll be collaborating on it. I mean, even even um, you know, even when relations were politically quite bad between the United States and Russia, you know, well, forever, <laughs> but. Um, you know they they are still collaborating on you know missions to the international space station and other scientific endeavors 
Um, and there's a long history of that, by the way, even during the Napoleonic Wars, for instance, there were special exemptions given to uh, scientists to travel between countries and, and, and to, to attend various different institutes and things like that. So um, no matter what's going on with our, our broader politics, that sort of thing can and, and should continue, I think, uh, that sort of collaboration, because it is in the interests, broader interests of humanity. Um, but yes, so I, th I think that's uh, on that sort of positive note, that optimistic note, I think that's where we'll end. Um, and uh, I know we were going to talk about Black Lives Matter, but we'll uh, talk about it next time. Um, I think maybe we'll have a little bit more detail about what is happening with that, some more analysis uh, of what has happened with that story uh, by the next time we record, because uh, of course he hasn't been sentenced yet. Um, but I think, as I say, on that positive note about space exploration and victory in the sporting world, uh, I'd say it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Bradley. Yeah, uh, just a note. I've just checked my book I'm reading. Sorry. Uh, Musk actually is more ambitious than any of the sport. He actually intends to send a manned um, flight to Mars by 2024, actually. Um, this was a book written in 2018 or 2017, so I imagine that is not probably not the case anymore because I feel like, they, well, they're probably on their way soon. Um, no, I think it only takes a, a matter of months, maybe, by current tech to get to Mars. But certainly earlier than 2035, I would imagine, is still at Musk's aim. So who knows? Maybe by the end of the decade, we might see it. Um, but yeah, that's a goodbye from me as well, folks. How exciting. So stay safe. Uh, as I say, I'm sure it's goodbye from Ollie as well, though we've lost his audio. Um, but uh, stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time.